Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Money Talks. My name is Hugh Meyer. Hope you're doing well. Really excited to, uh, to have our guest today here with us. Uh, before we get started, just want to remind everyone, Money Talks was started to connect, connect to small business owners, expert entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and business experts that could talk about how they've been working through these this really disruptive times. And today, like I said, I'm very excited to have my guest, Bob Wrightblatt. Bob, how are you today? I am wonderful. How are you? I'm doing great. Bob is the president of Mainsail Consulting in the Midwest. He is a published author, has started, built, and sold numerous companies, and has an amazing uh, conversation to have with us today on innovation and disruption, which clearly is a has always been a topic of discussion, but has gotten a lot more focus here this year. So without further ado, Bob, welcome. Nice to see you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Could you uh, just tell our viewers a little bit about yourself? Well, as you said, I'm a typical serial entrepreneur. I've started over a dozen companies, all some application of high technology that we didn't really sell high tech. We used it. For example, the last seven companies I started were all in the outpatient imaging space. So we okay. ran outpatient imaging centers. We did you know, high tech. Uh, dictation and reporting, et cetera. So we could uh, deliver more value than people could get by going to the local hospitals. Before that, I did uh, wireless internet. I know today it's every day. When I started the company, I don't know, 16 years ago, I, I think it was, uh, it was a big deal. People didn't have the access like we have today. And in the early 1980s, I actually started a company to rent computers, which I know today seems pretty funny. But in the early 1980s, companies didn't have budgets to buy computers. They had one for the whole company. Uh, nor did they have IT support staff. So they no. needed the technical expertise. So I had the staff. We had all the hardware. And we delivered computers for you know a day, a week, a month, or several months at a time. Again, it was early on in the industry. It made sense then. Today, it's as as you're already laughing. It is laughable. No one would start that business today. Right. So that's me in a nutshell. Thank you. Oh, that that was great. So, like I said, our topics today we're going to talk about disruption and innovation, and you know, we'll unpack that. Obviously, COVID came and has clearly been very disruptive. And you could talk a little bit about your thoughts on that. And then also we can get into what do you think is, what are causes of disruption? And the, the People say that COVID was really a disruption, but from a technical definition of true disruption, the pandemic really isn't a disruption. And the reason it's not a disruption is the true definition of disruption is that people make permanent behavior changes. Well, we don't know if all the changes we're going through at the moment are permanent. We've certainly seen the pandemic accelerate a lot of behavior change. For example, today we're on Zoom. Well, if I ask most people when was Zoom started, they go, I don't know, a year ago. Well, Zoom actually has been around since 2013. So it's been eight years already that people have been using Zoom. Obviously, the usage of Zoom has gone up, I don't know, I think it's 740% in the past six months. But it's not like it was a brand new application. Same thing with cashless payment. Companies have been trying to use cashless payment for, I don't know, 20, 25 years, whatever it's been already. Uh, obviously, it's been adopted more because of this coin shortage. And so people don't have to touch uh, paper money. 
So those behaviors have accelerated. When the pandemic's over, whenever it is, whether it's November or next January, whenever it's actually over, how many of the behavior changes we're seeing today are going to revert back to the way they were pre-pandemic? And that's the only time we're going to know if it's truly been a disruption or as I call it, it's merely an interruption to our business. Thank you for that. Yeah, that's, that, that's a great outlook or in a, in a great uh, thoughtful commentary about, about what you see as the definition of that and obviously how that's kind of intersected with what's going on this year. I guess what, from your perspective, how, how do you see that it's, how do you see that small business owners have kind of reacted to what's happened this year from your perspective? So if we typically look at disruption as some, some breakthrough technology that's going to change the world, that's what most people think of as disruption. The problem is we've seen so many breakthrough technologies that nobody wants. To me, the best example is the Segway two-wheel scooter. <laughs> came out in 2001. It was going to change the world. Apparently, people really didn't want that technology enough, at least not to part with their 6000 bucks. So it never changed the world. It never hit anywhere near the sales goals. I believe the original sales goal was 10,000 vehicles a week. And in the past, I don't know, 19 years, they've sold about 85 vehicles a week on average. Nobody cared about the technology. So disruption really is large-scale human behavior change. It is not technology. It's not ideas. It's not through business models. It's when people are dissatisfied with the way things currently are. And they're looking for something better. Or if they're just yearning for something better and something better finally comes along as they define it in their opinion. So as a business owner, instead of trying to come up with the next great through idea, a breakthrough idea, I'd rather find out what customers are really frustrated with. What are, they, what are they struggling with? Or what are they trying to accomplish that they can't accomplish today? And then I want to fill those needs. And if I do it well enough and I deliver enough value, then my idea, my approach, my solution is going to build so, so much momentum that I will achieve that large-scale human behavior change, which is really the cause of disruption, but it's really the result of growth. If I achieve hyper-growth because everybody wants what I offer, I will be the disruptor. The flip side of that is if I don't pay attention to my customers, if I don't have good customer empathy, if I'm not solving their problems as they perceive them, then they're not going to adopt my approach or solution. Someone else will, and I'm going to be the one on the outs. I'm going to be the one that's disrupted. That was, that, I mean, that was, that was great. Thank you for that, Bob. I mean, that's really the microcosm and really kind of capsulizing what's going on this year in a nutshell on how business owners need to react. Um, the well, word, can, I, the, can I stop you there? Please. I don't want business owners to react. I want them to respond. If you're reacting, you're just waiting for things to happen to you. I want thoughtful planning and strategy. I want forward looking and I want appropriate response. That's the difference here where with the pandemic, many people are just reacting, but those forward-thinking merchants, those forward-thinking investors were thinking ahead of, okay, what does this really mean? Even three months down the road, forget about five years, because we, we expect the pandemic's not going to be that long. Right. But what does it mean for the next few months? How can I respond to the ever-changing needs, wants, expectations, frustrations of my customers? 
being proactive. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that's, uh, I feel like that's been ingrained in me as far as in my profession is, and to what, to your point of, you know, being proactive is going to, you know, be much more fruitful and, you know, be, have, provide for a much more consistent relationship over the long run. Whereas like to your point of being reactive is, is not, is not where exactly you want it. You don't want to be reacting. You want to be planning, thinking ahead. Absolutely. You know, you think about it every time you sell a stock, someone else is buying it. What do they know that you don't? Why are they interested in buying on the very day that you want to sell? I don't remember. It was, I don't know, Ross Childs. Somebody said, you know, the best time to buy is when there's blood in the street. Right. Because you're thinking ahead. It's like, yes, this is short-term pain. But if you look to next week, next month, maybe next decade, if we get in now, we can get in at a better value. And then, you know, our cap rate is fabulous. <laughs> we can invest in and everyone else is going, wow, you were really smart. Okay. You could call it that. Or I was bold or I looked ahead. So let, oh, me give, right. let me give you an example. Please. Uh, about three months ago, I interviewed 2,000 senior executives on what they thought was the technology that was going to be the biggest disruptive factor over the next five years. Okay. What got the most votes was artificial intelligence. Okay. Now you think that things that are disruptive just suddenly pop up overnight. Wow, we didn't know that was coming. We're surprised. Well, artificial intelligence has been around since at least the 1960s. So we're talking about 60-year-old technology is what's assumed to be the most disruptive technology in the next five years. Don't tell me you didn't see it coming. Anytime, any disruption you can think of, there are hints and clues that are, pop up at least several years in advance to tell us that this trend, this what I would call weak signal is starting to solidify, telling us this is the way things are going. This is the way that humans are changing their behavior. So I can either open up my ears and eyes and watch and listen and learn, and then give up my assumptions about the way I think I make money in my industry, the way I think my, my customers will react. Instead, I want to find out how they really will react and then get in there again, as you said earlier, be proactive, be there early, and people go, wow, you really, you really were lucky. Yeah, I was really lucky by being attention. <laughs> by listening to the podcast, I was really lucky, and I decided I'm going to listen, <laughs> not just assume I know the answers. Listen and, and a lot of planning. Can you talk a little bit more about, uh, about the, your, your survey as far as uh, what, what else in kind of did you discuss or try to, I guess, extract from, from that? that uh, series. I really wanted to find out if there was something out there that I wasn't aware of okay. because I'm not an expert in every field. So there's a, this was a cross section of business owners across many industries. What did they see? And it's interesting that many people really were voting on uh, technology that's been around that I don't consider to be disruptive at all. It's really the application of it. The other thing the survey revealed was that most people looked at single technologies. And single technologies to me are typically not disruptors. It's often the combination of technologies and non-technological events. It's that, that cohesiveness or combination that really became the disruptor. 
You know, people talk about Tesla being a disruptor. And from my perspective, Tesla is just, just doing everything Ford Motor Company did 100 years ago. At the turn of the 20th century, Ford was a consolidated supply chain. They owned the wood, the forest that the wood came from to make the frames, to make the, the carts and the dashboards and everything else. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you're familiar with Kingsford Charcoal, yes, Kingsford Charcoal actually started off as Ford Charcoal. They owned the wood, they burned their scrap wood, made it into charcoal, and sold it at the Ford dealerships. When when Henry One died, his I think it was his brother-in-law is Kingsford, which is where the name of the for that's also the name of the forest. They changed the name to Kingsford Charcoal, spun it off as a separate business. So talk about your integrated supply chain that you even burn your own scrap and sell it off. So, and then eventually Ford, like all the other automotive industry players, started to separate their supply chain and use subcontractors. So Tesla now is making everything themselves. And we look at that as, wow, that's really disruptive. No, you just took a hundred year old idea and brought it back to life. It may really be disruptive, the source wasn't brand new. It's a hundred-year-old idea. Artificial intelligence, hundred-year-old idea. But are we, what are we going to combine it with? So we're going to combine it with voice activation and artificial intelligence. We're going to combine it with a smartphone so we have some human interface to it. But, you know, AI is the back end to it. And so there's combinations that I haven't dreamed up all of them either, there's these combinations that are truly going to be the disruptors. And that's what the survey proved. It also proved that most business owners are wearing blinders. They're looking at one particular item and they're not thinking that it's not the one, it's the combination that really is going to make the difference. That's, I mean, that, that's, that's a great point. Great advice. Um, you know, that's, you know, thank you for being such a great resource. That's why, you know, I started this podcast was I felt that small business owners, you know, and they continue to be very overwhelmed. There's so much information out there. Everyone proclaims to be an expert, but how do you distill it down? You know, what are the salient points? And, you know, I've been really fortunate to have people like yourself come on and just, you know, you know, give real time information, real time advice that I think is super helpful to small business owners. Well, the first thing is to admit that the hints and clues about the future actually exist. If you, if you don't think they exist, then it doesn't matter. If you go, yeah, these hints and clues, these trends build over time. Now you have, you put together a strategy, a plan for actually monitoring these hints and clues and then weighing their impact. For example, I grew up in the 60s watching Star Trek. I don't know if you saw the TV show, the original TV yes. show with the tricorder and the communicator. <laughs> well, in the, you know, 1967, those were science fiction. Right. Well, that communicator was called the StarTech phone that Motorola came out with. The tricorder is handheld diagnostics that we're using today to diagnose patients. So what was science fiction is now science fact. Somebody paid attention, probably watched the show like I did and said, I want to bring those things to life. So we watch for these things. So for example, just looking today, uh, I'm not trying to be political, but so here we are in September. We don't know who's going to win the election in November. Somehow over the next one to four years, our borders are going to be much tighter than they have been in the previous 50 years. 
What does that mean? That means our typical entry-level employees are harder to come by. So we already have a labor shortage. That labor shortage has been made worse by the tighter borders. That also means if we serve that end of the market, if we deal with that market segment, our customer base isn't growing. It's actually shrinking. We know that it's not a surprise. Now, if the Democrats happen to win in November, then it's likely if I either drew from that market or served that market, I'm going to be thinking, okay, now over the next few years, my market is going to grow, my labor pool is going to grow. If the Republicans keep the White House and I serve those markets or I need those employees, I'm going, okay, for the next four years at least, I'm going to be tight on employees. Maybe now's the time to invest in either robots or cobots kiosks to do what I need to do because I'm not going to get the, the bodies that I need. Right. Uh, if we look at places like Seattle, New York that want $15 an hour uh, minimum wage, that also dramatically impacts the labor pool and it's not likely going to be reversed. So there again, as a business owner, I'm thinking, how is that going to impact me? Not just tomorrow, but over the next three, five, even 10 years. As a business owner, I'm saying, well, I live in America. We're doing this podcast in America at the moment. But if we look at Japan, because they have an aging population right. that has aged more rapidly than ours, what are they doing to solve their problems that I can essentially borrow their ideas and apply them here so I can be first to market in my local market? So they're using robots as caregivers for seniors. They've used uh, assisted limbs where this, you know, exoskeleton to help people be more mobile so they don't need human help uh, to, to maintain the mobility. It's commonplace in Japan. It is much less likely here. But if I'm the first one to apply that solution, I'm ahead of the game. We know that people are living longer. Typically, they're living longer. Healthcare is improving. Medicine's improving. So where we think that people, you know, if their heart gives out, they're going to die in their 70s or 80s, whatever the number is. Uh, there are many people think that the, the next person to live or the first person to live to 150 years old is already alive. So if I'm building senior communities, uh, maybe 55 and up is the wrong number. Maybe I have a 55 to 80 community and I have an 80 plus community because suddenly I have this whole new market opening up at the high end. And, and, all this comes down to, all these ideas come down to, we're just paying attention to what's going on around us, and we're listening to what I call weak signals. If it's already a trend, if everything's already going in that direction, we're probably too late. We're looking for the weak signals that say, this is a possibility. Some trends are building, accelerating, some are declining. By looking at those, by understanding the impacts of those trends, we can start to predict what what the future is likely to hold and how will that likely future impact what we do today? Thank this you, Bob. is fun for me, so I can go on forever. <laughs> no, and I could, I could listen forever because there's, there's so much you're, you know, you're, you're bringing to light right now. Thank you for that. And, and, and really connecting, you know, how going from the micro level to the macro level and, and how we need to seek, like you said, these weak signals, and, and be planning and being proactive because like you're saying, these, these trends or signals may already be apparent and it's, it's important to be aware of that. 
We, I, I don't want to be surprised. Disruptions only surprise if you don't look for it. If you're looking for it, if you're paying attention for it to, for its arrival, it's not a surprise. It's another change, another factor, another force, either for or against you. But then, as we discussed, we'll use the word several times, we can be proactive about what we're going to do about it. A fun term I like to use is plan spontaneity. We don't know what's going to happen, but we've already thought about the possibilities. So when those eventualities come to be, oh, we're going to spontaneously go in the direction, the right direction. It's not really spontaneous. We already thought about it. For example, you know, I use the example of who's going to take the White House in November or who's going to win the election and take the White House in January. Um, I should have a, a strategy for either way right. for those things that could affect my business. Whether you want to influence by voting or not, I don't want to get into that one. Right. <laughs> but either way, it's either going to be this way or that way. And based on what we know today, what strategy am I going to have in my back pocket ready to go that plan spontaneity about what I'm going to do in January uh, based on uh, if, if the power changes or what I'm going to do in November and the next four years if Republicans keep controls as they have Yep, that's, I mean, you're right. That's, and I, I feel like I'm reading, you know, I'm seeing more of that, you know, it's starting to really the pick up as far as from prof other professionals having that same idea as far as, okay, you know, if it's, whether it's about taxes or whatever it's about, you know, you've got Biden here and Trump here and what could be here, what could be there. And, the, you know, the concept is it's pe those professionals being proactive with their clients saying, listen, you know, plan spontaneity, have have these ideas ready to go, have the plan ready to go once we know what the outcome is. Yeah. Now, of course, we can hedge our bets and say it's 60-40, it's going to go this way versus that way, and that's fine. We can, we can have those strategy discussions. I like to call that a future perspective. What's our perspective of the future? We you know, put some numbers to it. Every, everywhere we think of what's the climate going to do, what's the price of oil going to do, what do we think uh, is going to happen, we can look at the whole world. It's not a surprise that, uh, like in North Dakota, they've gone through their fifth cycle of boom and bust because of oil. Right. When I don't know what the numbers are. When oil is $60 a barrel, they can afford to frack, and when it's below that, they can't. So we can watch what OPEC is doing to say, are, are all those apartment buildings that are sitting empty in North Dakota suddenly going to be more valuable if I'm in real estate or if I see the price of oil dropping and I'm holding mortgages on real estate in North Dakota, I'm going to start to get a little nervous. But let's look five years down the road, 10 years down the road. I often say that with your organization, if the average age of your customers is constantly climbing, you're going to be disrupted because your customers literally are dying off. But as our population is living longer and being active longer, that may not be the case anymore. Where we think people stop doing business with our restaurant, our store, our bar, our retail shop in their 60s, maybe they will continue to be customers into their 70s or 80s. So we've been given a reprieve. But if you look at certain motorcycle manufacturers where their customers are constantly getting older, they're not attracting new new uh, riders, uh, that's an organization that I would short their stock because they're not going to be around. <laughs> well, point well taken. Uh, so I, I recently instituted what I, I like to call the Money Talks Minute where 
I, I'd like to give the my guests, who so I'm very grateful that they spend the time with me, who get peppered with questions, to ask me something. If they have a thought or a question they'd like to ask me about anything, uh, I I kind of stop it here and I, and I let the guests go ahead and do that, just just to change it up a little bit. Should I buy stock in Tesla? Wow, that's a very very direct question. Um, my my answer to that would be, I you know to your to your earlier analogy buying when there's blood in the streets. Um, that that's how I would answer that question as far as if, if, to buy anything because you know technology stocks obviously have gotten um, the benefit of a lot of the stimulus that's going on in the country. They seem to be businesses that are weathering the storm. Um, not only weathering the storm, they are growing, you know, massively during it. So they, 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 they call it preparation. Uh, they've done an amazing job and, you know, and that's where people keep investing their money are in these big technology companies, Tesla being one of them. Uh, listen, don't ever bet against Elon Musk. Um, okay. I mean, it's, he's, he's, you know, constantly trying to find ways to, push the limits of technology. So, you know, I, I would, would not bet against him. Um, you know, trying to pick a spot to buy a stock like Tesla could be somewhat difficult, obviously in the last few weeks when it fell from, um, you know, fell pretty significantly, like any opportunity, if there's something you want to get involved with better to do it then than to buy it when everyone was, um, you know, rushing in because of the stock split. So I hope that answers your question. It's very typical in that, from my perspective, that stock is priced based on people's perception, not about the fundamentals. 100%. So, so will that perception continue or will, will there come time to pay the piper? I think that's what everybody's asking about probably every stock. But when a company that sells, uh, what, one-tenth or 1% of, of the automotive industry is more valuable than any other supplier to the industry is that because it's there's that much upside potential or is it the perception of the market i actually like the idea of perception facts really don't matter people don't buy on facts they buy on emotion they make decisions on emotion and if those emotions continue i wanted to use that to my advantage right if i make assumptions about the industry, the market, whatever it happens to be, and my assumptions are based on just numbers in front of me, I may not make the decision that will yield the best result. Well said. Um, I mean, it's, that's perception is, perception is a lot of what we are surrounding ourselves with uh, in society every day. And clearly that perception is a big part of capital markets behavior. It's, it's really the customer's decision from their perspective, what they decide is valuable and isn't valuable. I love picking on Segway because it it's fun. Uh, the, the perception was for 6,000 bucks that technology was just overpriced. But for the $400 hoverboard that Ninebot sells using the exact same technology, apparently for 400 bucks, almost 20 years later, Wow, that's a really good value, and that's why they're selling them like crazy. So, yeah, it's all about the customer's perception. As they perceive it from their perspective, that's what we need every day 
What does the customer perceive? What is their perspective of it? And what do we see the trends going uh, forward? How will those perceptions change or, or become even more intense? That kind of, that kind of is a good segue, no pun intended, segue to our next, <laughs> and the next question, <laughs> which is, does, do you think that is what's caused you know, this bar of innovation really to be set so high and maybe it's getting higher? What are your, kind of your thoughts there? I think people are, are uh, their threshold has increased. For example, people often talk about that, you know, humans have a very, um, uh, a very short attention span. Right. And I say, except that you, know, you look at books like Harry Potter, they're not 900 pages long. People are reading those like crazy. So they don't have a short attention span. What they have is a low threshold of boredom. <laughs> So I think with, with innovation and new products and new services, people have a lower threshold of what they believe is more valuable. Getting people to change always requires them to give up something. Right. Always. At a minimum, they have to give up comfort and familiarity. You want me to change, you want me to adopt your new offering, your new product, your new service, your new restaurant, your new music, your new whatever. I have to give up what I'm comfortable with. I have to give up what I'm familiar with which means it better be worth it. People are tired of being lied to. Right. So, you know, these, these brands that promise new, better, great, wonderful. And yeah, it means you use blue on the, on the label instead of red. Whoopee. So now you need to offer me significant value to get me to give up my comfort, to get me to give up the way I've always done it, to, to spend whatever it is for me to switch, whether that's, literal capital or emotional right. capital. So that's why I think that threshold just keeps climbing. And that's why the bar for innovation keeps raising is we don't want ideas that are just a little bit different. We want ideas that I call meaningfully different, that people see the difference between what used to be and what you're offering me today. And that people actually recognize the difference. It's not just the red and the blue or, okay, now you have 37 uh, Cheerios in the bowl instead of 36. I, I'm, I'm not willing to change for that. Uh, I've seen numbers where people want 20% better, that they want 200% better before they're willing to go through the, what it takes to actually get them to switch. And every time that happens, that the bar for innovation keeps climbing, keeps climbing. Thank you. Thank you for that. That was, that was an amazing answer to that. And uh, again, I'm so appreciative that you could be here with us today. Uh, there's, a tremendous amount of snippets in this podcast that I'm looking forward to uh, to uh, seeing and pulling out for people because you really bring about some salient points that a lot that you know small business owners and anyone for that matter really can get a lot out of. So thank you again. Thank you for that. Maybe just give us a, a, a concluding thought, if you will. Concluding thought is instead of trying to be the disruptor or to be the innovator. Focus on how can you be more empathetic with your customers. And then the solutions that you need are more likely to be available to you. But if you start with, hey, I've got this idea, who's going to buy it? You're going to be wrong two-thirds of the time, which is the historical numbers for new products, new services, or you're going to be wrong 90% of the time if it's a new startup. But if you're more empathetic with your customers, your prospects, and look at things from their perspective. What are they trying to accomplish? What are they frustrated with? 
where do, where do they yearn for better and then focus on making their lives better, you're, you're much more likely to be successful. If you want to invest in businesses, also look at those businesses that are empathetic to their customers, that aren't trying to shove solutions down their throat. Look at those companies that have a culture of empathy that truly understands their markets, their customers, their prospects from the market's perspective. And they're the ones who are much more likely long-term to be successful. Thank you, Bob. That was, that was great. Uh, again, really appreciate you being here with us today. I learned a ton and I know our viewers did as well. And uh, definitely want to have you back again when time permits. Thank you, Bob. All right. Thank you, Hugh. Appreciate it. Thank you again. So thank you everyone for being here today. Really appreciate your time. Uh, remember, we'll be back with another episode next week. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel, the Money Talks YouTube channel, smash the like button. And my name is Hugh Meyer. Thanks again for being here. Remember, Money Talks. Have a great day. Thanks.